You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In a court case... When criminal charges are brought up against someone, both the defendant, who is the one being charged with whatever the crime is, and the prosecutor, who is the legal representation of the prosecution, those who are bringing the charges, both of them can call witnesses to testify before the court of what they know, of what they've seen, of what they've heard, or what they've experienced that has to do with the situation or the charges at hand. Now, in the Old Testament law, it took at least two witnesses to determine the truthfulness of a matter. And as we come here to our passage for this morning, there have been charges laid against the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy. And we see here that Paul... You know, as we go through his letters, as we see different things about Paul and Acts, it's clear Paul didn't really care about what others said or thought about him. That was not his concern. And yet at the same time, we see that there were times when his ministry was under attack, when his character was under attack, that for the sake of those he ministered to, he had to defend himself. And here in our text for this morning, defend himself and his co-workers for the gospel. And I think it's clear here in our text that, again, he wasn't defending himself for his own sake, but for the sake of the Thessalonian believers. And the way we'll see him make his defense is by calling upon two witnesses. The first witness is the Thessalonians themselves. Because they could testify to the integrity and the blamelessness of Paul's ministry among them. And the second witness is God. Because God could testify to the blamelessness of both Paul and Silas's and Timothy's actions and their motives. And so now as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, again, it would seem that there were these agitators who were trying to wreck the newfound faith of the Thessalonians by attempting to discredit Paul and Silas and Timothy. And while I do think that in this passage, Paul, again, is defending himself, we see that there's a certain purpose in this defense for the sake of the Thessalonians. Now, again, we've talked about how the Thessalonians, they they knew persecution almost from the very start of their church. And no doubt in the midst of this persecution, as they were facing it, there were those trying to destroy their faith in numerous kinds of ways including simply attempting to prove their faith as foolish by discrediting those who first brought them this faith, who proclaimed this faith to them. But again, so why is Paul defending himself? And how is it for the sake of the Thessalonians? Well, as we see here, 
Paul was defending himself, I think, and to elaborate on the fact that he was an example and Silas and Timothy were examples to the Thessalonians to follow. If Paul's credibility and his name and ministry is dragged through the mud, how can he be an example to the Thessalonians? And so I think that's what he's doing. He's defending himself in order to maintain that ability to be an example to them. Because we see in verse 1, verse 1 begins with the word for. This connects what Paul was saying back to what we read last week. And I think this specifically points to, in chapter 1, the end of verse 5, where we read, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then he went on from there and talked about how the Thessalonians became imitators of him and his co-workers and became imitators of Christ. And so he wants to continue for them to be able to look to them as examples to follow. And so showing that their ministry was true and was genuine before them. And so, again, these agitators, maybe they were claiming that Paul had, or it seems by the text, that they were claiming Paul had alternative motives for coming to Thessalonica. He had selfish motives. And so as he defends himself, we see there in verse 1 that he says that their coming to Thessalonica was not in vain, or it could also be said it was not empty. Now, some argue that the word vain here refers to Uh, Paul's ministry bearing fruit. It wasn't something that did not bear fruit. It did bear fruit. It didn't, it it had results. Others argue that the word vain here or empty refers to the goal of Paul's coming to Thessalonica. That he didn't come for no reason at all. It wasn't pointless for him to come. Or or that the motivation and point that he had, uh, it could be arguing that it was selfish that it was vain in the point that uh, Paul came only for himself and not for the benefit of others. And I really think that latter part is what is being said here, what is meant by vain. Because as we look to verse 2, we see that verse 2 is in sharp contrast to verse 1. We see it with the translation here, but, in the ESV. But there's no contrast here in reference to the fruit of their coming, I mean, certainly there was fruit. Certainly there were those who believed and were saved. But Paul didn't come to Thessalonica with an empty purpose. Having suffered already for what he came to do, he came and then continued to suffer doing it. And therefore, that does not point to a lack of motive on Paul's part. And it doesn't point to a self-seeking motive either. And so Paul points out how when they came to Thessalonica, they came having just been shamefully treated in Philippi, which apparently the Thessalonians knew that. It's likely that Paul and Silas told them that that happened. Maybe the scars and bruises from their recent beating raised the curiosity of the Thessalonians, and so maybe they asked. Yet despite being beaten for the gospel in Philippi, they came to Thessalonica with boldness in God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they just received a beating for preaching the gospel, and yet they were still going to come with the plan of preaching the gospel there in Thessalonica. And when they came preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, they did it in the midst of conflict. It continued to cause trouble for them. Now, 
Have you ever done something, and when you did it, it caused an issue, or you got hurt, or something happened, and then you did it again, and again, you something happened, and you got hurt, or it caused some sort of issue? And if you kept doing this over and over again and kept getting hurt and, or kept getting burned or rejected or whatever it might be, you may eventually just want to quit doing what you've been doing, right? I mean, if you keep doing it, expecting a different outcome, right? I mean, I think Albert Einstein said that's the very definition of ex- insanity. To do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. It could be like the kid who keeps falling off his bike right after he got his training wheels off. And after the 10th time that he's fallen and scraped his knee, he wants to give up. He's just done. He's just not worth it. And I think that's a sentiment we can all relate to in some way. We've been hurt and burned over and over again, and we ask ourselves, is this this worth it? Well, look at Paul. He kept preaching the gospel. Despite what happened, despite the consequences, do you think Paul thought it was worth it? Absolutely. It was clearly worth it for him to preach the gospel. And so Paul and his co-workers, they were empowered, they were emboldened to do the work of God. Made bold by God. Receiving divine strength to preach the gospel. Not only after suffering for preaching the gospel, but even in the midst of suffering because of preaching the gospel. And so the gospel went out at great cost to Paul and his co-workers. And actually, the gospel went out with great cost to all the apostles. And it went out with great cost to so many throughout church history, and even still today. For so many, it goes out with a great cost. But is it worth it? And though those who have paid that price, they paid it saying, yes, it's worth it. Emboldened by God, with the message that is from God, they're willing to pay that cost. So what cost are we willing to pay? I mean, as of yet, no one has threatened us with imprisonment. No one has beaten us like they did Paul and Silas. No one dragged us, has dragged us out before the authorities like they did those believers there in Thessalonica, as of yet. But what is it that holds us back from sharing the gospel today? What is it that makes us shrink when the opportunity comes to speak of Christ to someone? What cost are we unwilling to pay? Is it rejection? Name-calling? Broken relationships? A pop in the nose? Whatever it is that we may fear may happen in response to us sharing our faith with others. But my friends, is not the gospel worth it? I'm not saying it's not scary. But can we be emboldened by God to proclaim his message? You know, the, the fear of opposition can, can lead us to temptation. It can lead us to, to want to, okay, I've got to speak the message, but I'm going to kind of maybe water it down a bit. I'm going to make it so it's maybe not as offensive, so I'm not as at much risk for proclaiming this message. And so we may skip over the disagreeable things. But that's clearly not what Paul did. 
I mean, if it was, then he wouldn't have found himself in all the trouble that he did find himself in. He wouldn't have suffered all the pain and the cost of proclaiming the gospel if he watered it down, if he uh, skipped over the disagreeable things. Clearly, that's not what Paul did. John MacArthur said this. He said, but such a compromise had no place in Paul's strategy. Instead, he had full confidence in God's power to overcome all opposition and achieve his redemptive purpose. The servant of God preaches the true, unmitigated message God has laid out in his word. Not some other message. He does so for the sake of truth, not for personal popularity. And when opposition comes, he trusts in the power of God and stays obedient to his calling. All that was true of Paul and his companions. As with all dedicated preachers of the gospel, they count the cost of faithfully confronting sinners with their truth and rested boldly in the sovereign, supreme power of God. Do we have full confidence in our God to overcome and accomplish His redemptive purposes? And therefore, preach an unadulterated gospel. Do we confront sin? Be faithful And leave the saving work to God. Leave whatever consequences there may be. Entrust that to God. Have we counted the cost of faithfulness and rest in our sovereign God? And in doing so, can we then have the kind of ministry that Paul describes here in the following verses? A ministry of integrity. A ministry that spoke the truth. That spoke the unpopular truth that spoke in order not to please man, but to please God. Is that what it looks like here for us at North Valley? The confidence and the boldness that Paul and his companions had, again, it it came from God. And so did their message. We see in verse 3 that their message wasn't wrong, It wasn't from error that they preached. It wasn't like they were misled and therefore were unknowingly propagating a false teaching. No, their message was from God. Their message was the truth. And we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, that they refer to this message as our gospel. In other words, it was the gospel they preached. And then again, in chapter 1, verse 8, they refer to that message as the word of the Lord. And then what we just read here in chapter 2, verse 2, that message is called the gospel of God. So their gospel, the gospel they preached, that gospel was the word of the Lord. Their gospel was the gospel of God. It was not error. It was the truth of God. Also, it wasn't from impure motives that they preached. They weren't trying to lead others to follow them or to have any kind of financial gain. And so, too, neither was their message to deceive anyone. Instead, in verse 4, in contrast to all of those assaults against Paul, Silas, and Timothy's character, we read, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, the word translated here as approved, here means to be found fit after being tested. 
Paul was saying he and his co-workers were tested and found fit by God with the gospel. This was done by God's choosing of them to carry his gospel, entrusting them with it, commissioning, commissioning them. So with this responsibility, they would not twist the message that God had given them to preach. And what did they gain in preaching? What accusation could be laid against them that they did it with selfish motives so that they could gain financially or gain a following? What did they gain? Well, in Philippi, they gained imprisonment and a beating. In Thessalonica, they were accused of civil treason and they needed to flee to Berea under the cover of night. That's what they gained. But they were entrusted with a stewardship and so with that stewardship, they would be faithful because their aim was to please God. They were not aiming to please man with what they said, and that would include pleasing themselves. If their aim was to please man, if their aim was to please themselves, then they would do what they did to get rich and gain a following for themselves. But that's clearly not why they did what they did. Neither was it to make other people happy if they aim to make other people happy with us, then we skip over the, the things that are not desirable and only preach things that are desirable. We ignore the convicting things, the things that make people uncomfortable. We ignore the controversial things. But they didn't speak like that. When they spoke, they weren't fearing that someone may disagree with them or not like them because of what they said. No, they spoke what God wanted them to say. They spoke with the aim of pleasing God. If it pleased God, it didn't matter if it pleased man or not. That was their attitude. That's how they ministered. They spoke with purity and integrity. You know, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul said that if he was trying to please men, he would not be a slave of Christ. But the truth of the matter is, Paul was a slave of Christ. He was bought by the blood of Christ. He was not his own. He belonged to Christ, and he lived that out in what he did, in how he preached the gospel. His purpose, his goal, was to please God who tested their hearts. In other words... God, who tested Paul and his co-workers and found them fit to be entrusted with the gospel, he continued to test their hearts. He continued to test their motives. And so Paul could point to the evidence of their aim being to please God when he said in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. The Thessalonians knew they could bear witness to the fact, just as God could bear witness to the fact, that they did not come with words of flattery. The word flattery here refers to smooth talk someone would use to gain influence over someone else. When someone says nice things about someone, appealing to their, uh, to their pride and trying to build them up, in order to manipulate them to do what they want them to do. Paul said to the Thessalonians, you know that's not what we did. 
Because if that was what they did, they wouldn't come confronting sin and pointing to Christ as the exclusive way to be saved. That's not flattering. Hey, you can't save yourself. You need someone to save you. That takes a knife right to someone's pride. They didn't come with flattering words. And the Thessalonians knew that. They could bear witness to that. But again, Paul also called on God to bear witness to these things. And specifically called on God to bear witness to the motivation of their hearts. That it was not for greed that they came. That wasn't the real motive, as was being claimed. So my friend, do you do what you do? Do you serve? Do you speak the things that you do to please God or to please people? And pleasing people, again, could be including yourself. Do I do the things I do to please God or to please people, to please myself? Do you do what you do and say what you say to gain an influence over people? Maybe in your job, you hold a certain position, or in your family, you're, you know, an oldest or something, whatever it might be, or the favorite, whatever it is, or maybe you even hold a position here in the church, and so you think, I have the right, I have authority, and so you want to show that authority. You feel that you need to say something, and, and you're motivated to have a say. Is there any area where we may use flattery and use different words where we need to repent of those things, seeking to please God, being deceitful? Or do we have a ministry, do we have a life that's like Paul's? One that's with integrity. Again, I have to ask all these things of myself as well. Do we have a ministry here at North Valley that is for God? Do we speak to please God? Are we speaking and doing things to please man? Are we, are we not slaves of Christ? Do we not belong to Christ? If we're in Christ, if we've been saved, we are his slaves. And therefore, all we do and all we say should be to please God. That should always be our aim. And whenever that may bring us up against certain consequences, that there may be some sort of backlash because we've spoke the truth and we've, we've held on to our integrity, well, we need to trust God with the consequences of that. But that's not easy to do, and write down can be impossible if really what we're seeking is man's approval. If we operate out of the fear of man, rather than being conscious that it is God who tests our hearts. It is God who tests our motives. We also see in verse 6 that they did not come seeking glory, or you could say seeking praise or honor, respect from the Thessalonians, or for anyone else for that matter. I mean, if they did come with words of flattery, it would make sense that they wanted glory for themselves. Glory from, from men. But then they wouldn't be God-pleasers. Though they didn't come for glory or for respect. Though they would have been in a position to demand respect, considering they came with 
apostolic authority, the mission sent by Christ, they could have demanded honor in many ways, including financially, from the people there in Thessalonica. Instead, though, they didn't throw their weight around. They didn't make sure people knew they had authority. Instead, they acted in an exact opposite manner. And they acted in in such an opposite manner that in doing so, they were as nursing mothers taking care of her own children. They're like a mother tenderly caring for her baby as she she keeps her baby warm by, by holding the baby close. As she cherishes and comforts her child. That's just how Paul was and how Silas and Timothy were as they ministered among the Thessalonians. They cared for, truly cared for the Thessalonians, like a mother cares for her own child. That's a far cry from manipulation and self-seeking service. No, instead what's described here is deep affection and sacrificial love. And so in the way that they had such motherly care for the Thessalonians, they had such affection for them. And so Paul could say that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I want to share the gospel with you. I want to share my life with you. You are dear to me. And I pray that we together here at North Valley, that we can follow Paul's example, as Paul was an example to the Thessalonians. And that we would then share not only God's word and the gospel, but we would share ourselves with one another. And have a ministry here where we have great affection for each other. And that we would reflect on where where can we do better in showing affection and being loving and caring for each other and sharing with our lives. Even just last night I was thinking on this and how can I do better and, and, and share my life with all of you as we share our lives with each other together. And follow Paul's example. How can I let you know how grateful I am for you? And as we come to verse 9, Paul demonstrates what he was, what he's just said. And he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. This is how he showed affection. This is how he shared his life with them. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Again, they clearly did not come to Thessalonica with the idea of of having personal gain. And though they had authority from Christ, they didn't throw their weight around and demand they be paid by the church, but instead they provided for themselves, working even while they were executing the demands of ministry and proclaiming the gospel. They still work to support themselves. And again, these Thessalonians had to know that whatever it was that was being said about Paul and his co-workers, they had to know that it just was not true. They could bear witness to the fact that this was not true because they saw Paul. They saw his ministry. They saw how he lived among them. 
They saw his hard work and his selflessness. So they were witnesses, and so was God. God saw what they even couldn't see, which was Paul's heart and the motive behind everything they did. So their motives and their attitudes, their integrity, it was all clear. And so the testimony stood that they were holy and righteous. In other words, they they sought to please God and keep God's law, as they also sought to submit to man's authority as well. They were holy and righteous. And in doing so, they were blameless in how they treated the family of God there in Thessalonica. We see in verses 11 to 12, Paul reminded them how they knew that he and Silas and Timothy were exhorted, how they exhorted each one of the believers there, and how they encouraged and charged them. And that they exhorted and encouraged and charged them as a father with his children. And how does a father exhort? And how does a father encourage and charge? A father with his children does those things with affection and authority. And that's just what they did. And what was it that they exhorted the believers, that they urged them to do? What is it that they encouraged them? What is it that they charged them with, insisted on? What was to walk in a manner worthy of God? To walk refers to the continual or habitual patterns of one's life. Those who have truly been saved, who have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, turning from their idols to serve the one and true living God, they now have a new life. They are not who they used to be. The pattern of their life, since now trusting in Christ, is new. It's not like their old life anymore. And if it remains like their old life, well, it can bring into question whether or not they really have been given new life. Whether they really are trusting in Christ. Because the gospel brings about a transformation in one's life. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings about a transformation that we are new. And so we have a new aim to our lives. And that's what it is to live in a manner worthy of God. It's to make God the end goal. It's to make God the focus. It's to live in a way that God determines for us to live. To live worthy of God is to live for God, to live for His honor and His glory in all that we do. Living to walk in a manner worthy of God. It is also not to earn our salvation, but it's a result of our salvation. To live in response to God's saving call in the gospel as he calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All believers enter into God's ruling realm in their hearts and are citizens of his kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. All of us, if we're trusting in Christ, even though Christ has not come yet and established his kingdom on earth, even though we're still looking for the kingdom going into the eternal state of the new heaven and new earth, but yet even now, if we are in Christ, we are citizens of his kingdom. And as citizens of his kingdom, we look forward to the day when we will share in his glory. This is he who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. 
It says for all who have turned to Christ for salvation, who recognize that we are sinners before the holy and living God. We need forgiveness. We need salvation. And we recognize that Christ came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. Christ came and was the perfect sacrifice who offered himself in our place on the cross, who suffered and paid for our sin in his own body, satisfying the wrath of God in our place, and on the third day, rising again victorious. And if we would trust in him alone, trust in Him to save us, turn to Him, then we are citizens of His kingdom and we will share in His glory. So my friends, if you have turned from your sin and are trusting in Christ for your salvation, then we have been saved and in response to that, in response to God's saving work, in response to His effectual call on our lives, we should walk in a manner worthy of God. We should follow Paul's example of integrity, of honor, seeking to please not people, but God, having warm affection for one another, warm affection for those we have the opportunity to serve, warm affection for those we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to. Paul knew he had to defend his and his co-workers' ministry among the Thessalonians if the Thessalonians were going to be able to follow his example his example of life and ministry. And so, like witnesses for a defense before a judge, Paul called upon the Thessalonians and what they knew, and he called them to remember. And his second witness was God himself. God who could judge both his actions and his motives. And so Paul defended his ministry against these false accusations. And therefore, Paul could be an example to the Thessalonians. And remember, we're, we're looking at the Thessalonians asking, hey, are we, are we like that church? Are we like them? Can we follow their example? Well, following their example is following Paul's example. So we follow Paul's example. This example of life and ministry. Is that what we see here at North Valley Baptist Church? Let us follow that example as, as we look to his word, as we continue going through this verse by verse. And in response to God's call of salvation on our lives in the gospel, let us follow his example by striving to live lives that are worthy of God in all that we do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.